And here, we've been uh, in this series on the letter to the Colossians since uh, mid-September. Ten weeks, we've been uh, learning about the supremacy of Christ and what it looks like to find our identity in Christ. And so, as we, as we saw in chapter 1, the, the goal of all of that was so that the Colossians and we, as, as we read it, would become mature in Christ. And that maturity, we saw in chapters 2 and 3, has this practical outworking uh, in our, uh, our thoughts, our speech, our actions, and, and really all of our relationships, right? I, my hope is that as we've moved through this series, we've seen that we cannot afford to compartmentalize our, our lives into um, the, the spiritual parts and the secular parts, the, uh, the parts of our lives that, that Jesus gets to have control over and the parts that we say we want to retain control over. Because all that we have and, and, and all that we are, all that we could ever hope to be is under the rule or should be under the rule of King Jesus who is, as we learned in, in chapter 1, the supreme king of the universe. Now, of course, for, for all of us, the reality is that we're going to have to continue learning this. We're going to have to continue putting this into practice for a long, long time after we finish this series. We'll, we'll spend the rest of our lives really learning to do this. We will, we will continue to have to put uh, to death the, the old person. I have to continue to put to death the old dean. And I have to continue to, to put on the character of Christ. And it's hard, Right? But that's, that's what this letter calls us to. And the important thing is that we are continually striving toward that. Amen? I, I hope. I, I hope. I hope inside there's more of a... Um, convicted... Amen. I know that's true. I know that's not a... Amen! You know, but it's a, yeah, we, we just got it. Well, as we come to the, the end of the letter, um, I think it would be pretty easy for us to think that verses 7 through 18 really don't have anything much, anyway, to say uh, to us uh, today in, in 2022. Uh, in, in one sense... This, this section feels a little bit like reading the long genealogy in, in Matthew's gospel or the so-and-so begat so-and-so in, you know, that, we, that we have in Genesis and Numbers and Chronicles. I've, I've seen that a lot of pastors, when they preach through Colossians, um, actually stop where we did last week. They, they don't finish on to the end. Um, but lucky you. (laughs) I'm going to preach on it this morning because I think that there's actually something really important for us to see in these closing verses uh, of this letter. So I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. 
that's on page 952 in the Bibles that the ushers handed out. And I'm going to read through these verses and then, then we'll pray together before we take a closer look. So uh, Colossians chapter 4, beginning at verse 7, we read this. Tychicus, our dear brother, faithful minister, and fellow slave in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are doing and that he may encourage your hearts. I sent him with Onesimus, the faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you about everything here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. In terms of Jewish converts, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a great comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a slave of Christ, greets you. He is always struggling in prayer on your behalf so that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I can testify that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the physician, and Demas also greet you. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters who are in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church that meets in her house. And after you have read this letter, have it read to the church of Laodicea. In turn, read the letter from Laodicea as well. And tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting by my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Lord, as we look at these verses, uh, we, we pray that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts this morning. Help us hear what it is that you uh, want us to know this morning. Help us to find ourselves, our own stories uh, in this uh, in these verses here that we will look at today. And, and we pray that as we do that, our lives would be changed. Our understanding of who you are and who we are would be changed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we can kind of struggle with sections in the Bible that um, aren't narrative or, or didactic. Uh, if it's telling a story or if it's telling us something specific that we're supposed to do, it's, it's a lot easier, it seems, for us to wrap our minds around it. But what I hope uh, we will see this morning is that the focus in these verses is on people. Most of them are very ordinary people. There are people like you and, and me. And I think there's something uh, for us here in, in understanding who these people were and how they fit into the work that, that Christ was doing in his church and in the world. So I want, to, uh, I want us to go through these names and, and try to understand something about each one of them and, and perhaps even see ourselves uh, in, in their lives, in their stories. 
So the first two names we encounter are the letter carriers uh, in, in this story. Uh, their job was, was pretty different from the letter carriers that deliver our mail today because these letter carriers had a close relationship uh, with the writer of the letter. So they were expected not only to safely deliver the letter, but then they read it to the recipients and they were supposed to explain it to them. Uh, they, they really were ambassadors of the person who wrote the letter. Lucas, I'm guessing this is significantly different than, than what you have to do. You probably don't very often have to read the mail to your customers and, and explain the mail on top of that. I was sort of thinking about all the junk mail that you have to deliver. And, oh, Mr. Brown, you really need to, you need to sign up for this whatever the thing is that you're delivering. Um, so the, the letter carriers were different. And the, and the first one that's mentioned in this ministry team is Tychicus. Now, Tychicus was from Thessalonica. He had traveled widely with Paul. He's mentioned in four of Paul's letters. He's mentioned in Acts uh, as a member of Paul's missionary team. He was part of the delegation chosen by the churches of Macedonia to accompany Paul uh, when he delivered a, a relief offering to the poor and needy Christians in Jerusalem. Later on, Paul sent him to Ephesus to take Timothy's place uh, as, as pastor in that city. And uh, as the letter to Titus uh, suggests to us, uh, Tychicus was also sent to Crete at, at one point. Uh, Tychicus is apparently unknown to the Colossian believers, so Paul introduces him as a beloved brother, a faithful servant, and a fellow slave in Christ. You, you can kind of sense beloved brother doesn't, doesn't capture it, really, uh, the, the affection that, that Paul has uh, for him. He's a, he's a dear brother, uh, this Tychicus. And Paul uh, wants the Colossians to know that when Tychicus delivers the letter and, and explains all that is going on, they can, they can trust that they're hearing from somebody uh, that Paul views as, as reliable. And Paul says in verse 8, the express purpose of Tychicus's visit uh, to the Colossians is so that they will be encouraged by him and what he has to share with them. So that's Tychicus. Then Paul introduces Onesimus. Now, Onesimus didn't need a lot of introduction uh, for the Colossians because he was from Colossae. Uh, they knew him. But Paul does need to change uh, their opinion about Onesimus. Onesimus has a really bad reputation in Colossae because the Colossian Christians all know that Onesimus was a runaway slave. His master is Philemon, whose house the church meets in. Uh, Onesimus would have been considered a, a fugitive. Uh, I, I was trying to think of a scenario. I, I, I can't really think of one for our church, but if someone came in who had done real harm to 
one of our members here, or even to me, and you all knew about it, it'd be hard to welcome them, right? It'd be hard. But somehow, Onesimus has come into contact with Paul and Timothy. He's heard the gospel, and he's responded to the gospel, and now he's given his life to serving Christ. Now Paul and Timothy refer to him as a faithful and beloved brother. In the letter to Philemon, Paul tells Philemon to receive Onesimus as a brother, no longer as a slave. So imagine Onesimus carrying this letter back to Colossae. I mean, he's walking back into um, potentially, you know, being arrested, being prosecuted. Um, It would have been much easier for him just to continue as a runaway. But Paul sends him back. And Paul tells Philemon, even though he has every right to prosecute Onesimus, he tells him, treat him like a brother rather than a slave. And Paul even offers to pay for any damages uh, that have been incurred uh, because of Onesimus's crime. And it's just, it's a beautiful story that we have here. Onesimus's willingness to submit, to go, to go back. Philemon's willingness to, to receive him as a brother instead of a slave. And Paul's willingness to cover all the costs, I think really can only be attributed to the, the amazing power and work of the gospel in people's lives. So it's, you know, it's just a name that goes by pretty quick, but there's a story behind this name that's, that's really, really phenomenal. Well, after introducing the two letter carriers, Paul and Timothy send greetings from six friends uh, who are with them there. And the first of these friends is a man named Aristarchus. Now, we don't know a ton about Aristarchus. There's only a few mentions of him in the Bible. Uh, we know from the book of Acts that he was from Thessalonica. Uh, he, he probably came to faith in that town when Paul was on his second missionary trip that, that took him through there. Uh, he joined Paul's team of missionaries and traveled with Paul on his third missionary trip. In Acts 19, uh, we learned that he was seized by an angry mob in Ephesus. Some of you may remember that incident when we went through Acts a year ago. So angry mob, uh, Aristarchus was, was one of the people who was seized by that mob, ended up in jail for a little while until the authorities could, could sort things out. But now, Paul says, he's a fellow prisoner, probably awaiting trial for a similar crime of proclaiming the good news about Jesus. And along with the next two names that we're going to read, Aristarchus is said to be a great comfort uh, to Paul. The next of Paul's six friends is a man that we are very familiar with. His name is John Mark, or simply Mark. Uh, We know that John Mark is a cousin of Barnabas. Uh, He's a Jewish man from Jerusalem. His mother hosts uh, a a church in her home there in Jerusalem. Uh, John Mark traveled with Paul and Barnabas to Cyprus on Paul's first missionary journey. And then in Acts 13, we learn that he abandoned the mission. We know that story, right? It seems that maybe this isn't the first time that John Mark has run away from 
uh, a difficult or dangerous uh, situation. Uh, Because we think that he might be the unnamed young man in Mark chapter 15 uh, that that ran away from the garden when, when the soldiers tried to grab him. They tore his clothes off and he ran away naked uh, from, from Jesus and the other disciples. Well, later on, when, when Barnabas wanted to take uh, John Mark on the second missionary journey, uh, Paul just refused. He said, no, I'm, I'm not having a quitter on my team, right? And, and this caused this really sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. But... But there's more to the story. Because here, about 12 years later, John Mark is reunited with Paul. Uh, Verse 11 says that he's a comfort to him. In Philemon 1, Paul refers to him as a co-laborer. Obviously, John Mark has matured through the years and and has proved himself as a faithful uh, minister, a, a faithful servant of the Lord. And so Paul now sees him as a valuable co-laborer. In verse 10, Paul says that the Colossians had already received instructions about Mark. And then Paul adds further instructions. He says, if Mark comes, you are to welcome him. And we don't know if this was a change. We don't know what those first instructions were. You know, they might have been, don't let this quitter in. Or they might have been, uh, you know, welcome him. Anyway, we don't know. Uh, So maybe he was changing what had been said earlier. Maybe he was just reinforcing what had been said earlier. But either way, it's clear here that John Mark has has now become a trusted and faithful co-laborer. John Mark, uh, we know, spent a lot of time mentoring under the Apostle Peter and eventually wrote the gospel of Mark. That's who John Mark is. The next person that Paul sends greetings from uh, to the Colossians is a man named Jesus, who was also called Justice. Um, Let's go to that next slide. Yeah. He was absent on picture day, so we (laughs) we don't have an image of him. We know almost nothing about Justice. Uh, From these verses, we know that he was a Jewish man. Uh, We think he probably took on the Roman name Justice uh, to more uh, easily minister to to Gentiles. Um, This is what John Mark did. His his Jewish name was John. His Greek name was Marcus, okay? Uh, Saul, uh, Jewish man, changed his name to Paul. Right? Probably for those reasons. And that's really all we know about justice, uh, except that these three, Aristarchus, John Mark, and Justice, were the only three Jewish converts who were still with Paul working uh, for the kingdom at, at this time. Uh, Ray Stedman uh, comments that these three might be called the original Jews for Jesus. Right? <laughs> Who, who, who went around to share the good news about the Savior. So that's the first three of these six friends Paul sends greetings from, and they're all Jewish converts. The next three are all Gentile converts. 
And, and Paul begins with someone very familiar to the Colossians. Um, Epaphras was a Gentile Christian who was from Colossae. He's the one who first told the Colossians about Jesus and, and got the church started there. He's probably also the one uh, who, who told people in Laodicea and Hierapolis about Jesus and started the churches there. Uh, Epaphras has a pastor's heart. Uh, Paul says that he agonized in prayer and in teaching so that the Colossians would become mature in Christ. Uh, throughout this letter to the Colossians, Epaphras is referred to um, at, at different times as our dear fellow servant, a faithful minister of Christ, a slave of Christ Jesus, always wrestling in prayer and working hard. The Colossians knew about Epaphras. They loved Epaphras. But to have the Apostle Paul commend him in these ways uh, must have been not only a, a humbling honor for Epaphras, but a real encouragement for the Colossians who were his spiritual children. This is the Apostle Paul saying these things about him. It's a big deal. It's, a, it's, it's quite a letter of recommendation. Well, after Epaphras, Paul mentions his dear friend, Dr. Luke. Um, Paul's most faithful friend is Luke. In 2 Timothy, uh, Paul's last letter before he was executed, Paul says, only Luke is with me. Only Luke is with me. All the others had left, but Luke remained faithful to the end. It's only here in Colossians 4 that we learn that Luke was a physician by, by training and profession. Uh, Paul also refers to Luke as a co-laborer in Philemon 124. And it's really no wonder. Luke had joined Paul in Troas in Asia Minor during Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, Bible scholars speculate that Luke was the man of Macedonia whom Paul saw in his dream in Acts 16. Uh, Luke was left in Philippi during the second missionary journey and then picked up again to travel with Paul in the third journey in Acts 20. Uh, Luke accompanied Paul on his journey to Jerusalem and to Rome and was with him uh, during his imprisonment there right right to the very end. So not only was Luke uh, incredibly valuable to Paul, where would we be? Think about this. Where would we be without the gospel of Luke? We're coming into the Advent season. One of, one of the best passages of the Christmas story, at least according to Linus, Right? That's what Christmas is really all about, Charlie Brown, right? Where would we be without Luke's gospel? Or the book of Acts. He wrote the book of Acts, too. And, and by volume, just in those two books, Luke has written more words of the, of the New Testament than anyone else. Most people think it's Paul. It's not Paul. It's Luke. It's this guy. Some Bible scholars uh, even make a case for Luke as the author of the book of Hebrews. 
the church, we today owe a, a huge debt uh, to Luke for his faithful labors uh, for the cause of Christ. Well, the next person to send uh, greetings is Demas. Demas was also absent on picture day. Uh, we don't know hardly anything about him. He's mentioned in Philemon as a co-laborer with Paul. And apparently he labored faithfully for a while because uh, Paul seems to have taken him on, on several trips. But tragically, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, we learn that Demas deserted Paul and abandoned the faith. Paul said that, that Demas loved the things of the world too much. And he walked away. Uh, we've, we've probably all known uh, people who have done this. Uh, some of them are really close to us, right? And it, it's, it's heart-wrenching. It, it really is. And, and oftentimes we ask ourselves, what did we do wrong? Or, or what could I have done differently to, to prevent this? Probably nothing. Probably nothing. Because if, if being around, being discipled by the likes of this all-star band of Christian leaders, if being in their proximity didn't prevent Demas from leaving the faith, I kind of doubt that there's anything you or I could could do to, to change that in the lives of the people that, that we know who have done this, right? But even with what we know about Demas's eventual outcome, John Woodhouse comments that this is really quite a little prayer group, these, these six guys, plus Paul and Timothy. Uh, three of the writers of the New Testament are listed here. Mark, Luke, and Paul. Pretty incredible, pretty incredible small group, right? Well, after these six send their greetings, Paul sends his own greetings. Uh, first, he sends greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea. We don't know who those people are, but uh, the believers in Colossae uh, certainly did. Uh, Paul knew who they were, but uh, they were to, to send greetings to them. The only person from this church that is named is Nympha. Uh, Nympha is one of 16 women that Paul mentions by name in his letters. Uh, the church of, uh, in, in Laodicea meets in her home. We don't know if she had any leadership role beyond that, but they, they did meet in her home. Bible scholars speculate that Nympha uh, may have been a widow since it's, it's her home that they, they meet in, not her husband's home, Right? Uh, they also speculate that she was probably wealthy because she owned a house, and she owned a house that was large enough for the believers to meet in. Whatever her role or status, Paul obviously thought very highly of Nympha to mention her in this list. And then be before we come to the last name that Paul mentions, he gives a couple of instructions to the Colossians. He says in verse 16, after you have read this letter, have it read to the church of Laodicea. In turn, read the letter from Laodicea as well. 
So, so Paul's letters to the various churches were in a sense sort of a, a round robin uh, letter. Um, we don't know uh, what this letter, uh, this Laodicean letter uh, was. Um, it's either lost or uh, some Bible scholars speculate that it actually may be the letter to the Ephesians. Um, there's, a, there's a long list of reasons that they think that might be the case. Uh, we're never going to know, probably, right? Unless something is uncovered uh, by some archaeologist or something. But, um, but what this verse does is it does give us insight into how Paul's letters uh, began to be distributed, circulated, copied, and, and later became a part of the canon that we call the Bible, right? It's, it's interesting to see just this little glimpse of, of how that happened. So a couple of instructions about um, uh, reading, exchanging these letters uh, that, they, that the Colossians have received with the letters that the Laodiceans have. And then Paul mentions one more person before he signs off. We're, we're not positive, but from what Paul says in the opening verses of the letter to Philemon, uh, many Bible scholars think that Archippus was Philemon's son. Uh, the, the church in Colossae met in Philemon's house, and Archippus, um, perhaps his son, had been given some kind of ministry from the Lord. We don't know what that was. Uh, it, it seems reasonable uh, that the believers there in Colossae did. Um, why did Paul say this? We're not sure. Maybe he had heard that uh, Archippus had become discouraged and, and was considering giving up. Uh, maybe he had heard that Archippus was in danger of abandoning the work like John Mark had. Uh, whatever the reason, Paul felt like he needed to tell Archippus to complete the ministry you have received from the Lord. Stay at it. Get her done. Right? And by mentioning it in his letter, Paul not only encouraged Archippus to continue in his ministry, he also, I think, was telling the Colossians to encourage Archippus on in his ministry. And, and I think this is something that all of us need, regardless of, of the ministry area that we're involved in. We can grow weary in it. Uh, we can become discouraged. And we need others to, to come along and, and encourage us. Stay at it. This is important. It matters. Um, when you see brothers and sisters at Grace doing some ministry, um, thank them for it. Encourage them on in it. Uh, appreciate them. It's important. Well, finally, Paul ends his letter like he does all his letters. Uh, he takes the pen from his scribe and he signs his name. There's a there's a lot of speculation as to why 
he does it. I've, I've, I've heard that he was a lefty and he didn't write very well. I've heard that he had bad eyesight and so he wrote really big. I, I, we don't know. But he did it with all of his, his letters. In 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul says that he signs all his letters. And, and here in Colossians, as he did in, in 1 Corinthians, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting by my own hand. Remember my chains, grace be with you. Apparently, Paul's signature was distinct enough that people could tell it was from him. Just like today, uh, when you sign something, it, it authenticates that that thing is, is coming from you. That, that letter, that document, whatever it is, is, is coming from you. And so it was the same with Paul. This was coming from Paul, and with it came his authority as an apostle. And then he asked them to pray for his situation, being in chains, being in prison, and extends the grace of God to them. And that's the end of the letter. Um, maybe that's been interesting to you this morning. I hope it's interesting. I don't know. Maybe you've learned something new about one of these obscure names that we, that we have here. Uh, I'm not standing up here to be interesting. Okay? So I would say, so what? So what about this? And that's, that's why a lot of people choose not to preach these verses. Because they get to the end of it and they go, so what? Right? But I think there's uh, two things that are important for us to see here. And the first... The first is this, Um, reaching the goal is a team effort. Reaching the goal is a team effort. The church was never intended to be a place for for prima donnas or or one-man shows. Uh, The the, the goal of, of helping the Colossian Christians reach maturity in Christ was was only ever going to be achieved collectively. And the same is true for us today. Uh, Max Dunham, Bible scholar, says, says this, when we read this list of names, Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Mark, Justus, Epaphras, Luke, Demas, Nymphus, and Archippus, it's not readily apparent that this is a list of heroes of the faith. Apart from Mark and Luke, it's rare to hear any of their names. But Paul closes his letter by celebrating the supporting cast. The supporting cast. As I've preached through uh, this letter, I've, I've had to continue to be mindful that we're prone to celebrate the famous and, and downplay the lesser known. Who wrote the letter to the Colossians? Paul? Well, chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that it was Paul and Timothy. But, but we all do that. And, and I, I've, had to, I've had to work against that because I'm inclined to say Paul said, Paul said, Paul said. Paul's sort of the star. Timothy, the lesser known, was, was also a part of it. And as we saw, it, it probably wasn't Paul who actually wrote it down in the first place. Dunham continues, and and I'll have this on the screen. On the ship of the church, 
There are no passengers. All are members of the crew. The church is not a place for soloists. It's an orchestra. Each person is a different instrument playing a unique sound added to the sounds of others. The symphony of the gospel is lived and shared with the world. I used to have a guitar player on my worship team. When, when we'd gather to pray, he, he, he prayed this way. And, and rather than asking that God would help him to play his guitar better, to play his instrument better, he asked that God would play him as an instrument better. You see? And this leads to the second observation in in this passage. In, In one way or another, I think all of us are represented in this list of people. First, we... We see a diversity of backgrounds in this list. Uh, because in the list, there's Jews and Gentiles, really all different ethnicities. We have men and women. We have slaves and slave owners. We have wealthy and poor. We have educated and uneducated. We have longtime faithful followers and new converts. We have reconciled brothers and those in danger of falling away. It's, it's an amazing diversity of people with an amazing diversity of gifting. Because again, in this, in this list of people, we see evangelists and church planters. We see writers of scripture and expositors of scripture, missionaries, small group leaders, ministry leaders, prayer warriors, encouragers. That was their ministry just to encourage All of these various people are used in God's plan to develop people who are mature in Christ. No one is better. No one is lesser. We're we're all just servants of Christ. So God is using all kinds of different people to shape us into the people he wants us to be. And he wants us to use who we are and how we are gifted to shape others in the people he wants them to be. You see, if I were to particularize it to, to grace, another way to say it would, would be to say this, hopefully God is using me and my gifts to shape you, but God is using you and your gifts to shape me. That's how it works. I'm going to invite David and the worship team to come back up. And as they do, I'm going to read the passage that I actually had selected for our scripture reading uh, that normally comes before the sermon, but I, I just decided that it's, it's a great way to end. It's from 1 Corinthians 12, and I'm going to read it from Eugene Peterson's uh, paraphrase, The Message. He says this, You can see easily enough how this works by looking at your own body. Your body has many parts, limbs, organs, cells. But no matter how many parts you can name, you're still just one body. It's exactly the same with Christ. By means of his one spirit, we all said goodbye to our partial and piecemeal lives. We each used to independently call our own shots, but then we entered into a large and integrated life in which he has the final say in everything. 
This is what we proclaimed in word and action when we were baptized. Each of us is now a part of his resurrection body, refreshed and sustained at one fountain, his spirit, where we all come to drink. The old labels we once used to identify ourselves, labels like Jew or Greek, slave or free, they're no longer useful. We need something larger, more comprehensive. I want you to think about how all this makes you more significant, not less. A body isn't just a single part blown up into something huge. It's all the different but similar parts arranged and and functioning together. If Foote said, I'm not elegant like the hand, embellished with rings, I guess I don't belong to the body. Would that make it so? Or if ear said, I'm not beautiful like I, transparent and expressive. I really don't deserve a place on the head. Would you want to remove it from the body? If the body was all eye, how could it hear? If all ear, how could it smell? As it is, we see that God has carefully placed each part of the body right where he wanted it. But I also want you to think about how this keeps your significance from getting blown up into self-importance. For no matter how significant you are, it is only because of what you are a part of. An enormous eye or a gigantic hand wouldn't be a body, it'd be a monster. What we have is one body with many parts, each its proper size and in its proper place. No part is more important on its own. Can you imagine eye telling hand, get lost, I don't need you, or head telling foot, you're fired, your job has been phased out. As a matter of fact, in practice, it works just the other way. The lower part, the lower the part, the more basic, and therefore the more necessary. You can live without an eye, for instance, but not without a stomach. When it's part of your own body you are concerned with, it makes no difference whether the part is visible or closed, higher or lower. You give it dignity and honor just as it is, without comparisons. If anything, you have more concern for the lower parts than the higher. If you had to choose, wouldn't you prefer good digestion to full-bodied hair? (laughs) You see, the way God designed our bodies is a model for understanding our lives together as a church. Every part dependent on every other part. The parts we mention and the parts we don't. The parts we see and the parts we don't. If one part hurts, every other part is involved in the hurt and in the healing. If one part flourishes, every other part enters into the exuberance. You. All y'all. You are Christ's body. That's who you are. Don't ever forget it. Let's pray. God, thank you for this list of people at the end of this letter. Uh, People who came from a lot of different backgrounds. People who you had gifted in a lot of different ways, all working together 
to build up this little church in Colossae, to, to help to, to build them into mature Christians. And God, as we bring this forward into our little church here in St. Helens, I pray that you would do the same. That you, you would use all of our various backgrounds, all of our various gifting to do something that, that only you can do, only the gospel can do. To, to build us up, to make us mature in Christ. Uh, that, that, that we would shine as members of the body of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.